0: I mean, if people aren't wanting to be educated in it, you can't force them and sit them down. Although I think they'd love it if they did. I always say that people don't work in the arts unless you really love it, because as soon as you stop loving it, people just step aside. I wish that everybody in the world understood how much the arts gives The whole world because
1: I I just don't think they know. Welcome to the Theatre Art Live podcast. And hello, we're putting the spotlight on those who create live entertainment around the globe the culture creators, the backstage masters. My name is Anna Aguilera.
2: And my name is Anna Robb. On this episode, we'll be talking to Sophie Mackay about stage managing opera.
1: Sophie is a stage manager from Sydney, Australia. After receiving a BA for Design for Theatre and Television from Charles Sturt University. Sophie joined the staging department at the Sydney Opera House before moving into the stage management department. Since then, she has also worked with Pinchgut Opera, Pacific Opera, Sydney Theatre Company, Opera Australia, the Ensemble Theatre, Sydney Festival, Dubai Opera. Then she went back to Opera Australia, and now she is an event manager at City Recital Hall. Hello, welcome to the show. Hi,
0: that sounded really impressive. I'm like, say that again. <laughs>
2: <laughs> we just added the new. We added the new job title at the end because we
1: just, shit. <laughs> we just, just got in through the door,
2: keeping us on our toes. <laughs> Sorry,
1: <laughs> those improv classes where we're going to take, right?
2: Yeah, <laughs> improv classes. So I want to start with a little bit about. Uh, you and also a little bit about stage management in Australia we have a international audience as you know so just tell our audience a little bit about how you got into stage management and why and what the landscape in Australia was when you first started out.
0: Well I I went to university to study it but then you know decided after university it was a lot of hard work didn't want to do it fell back into it I think as through your introduction said with the um, mechanist and then it's all about, it, 20 years ago it was all about knowing people. I think that's how you got in the door. Um, it didn't really matter. I didn't think how much work experience and stuff you
2: did. you really need to know people and
0: get in that way. Um,
2: you went into as a mechanist at the Sydney Opera House and, and basically because that was the work that you could get before you could work your way into opera or how did that go? Oh, it
0: was a fluke. I opened the newspaper for a first time in ages and my ma- my mother had looked at it too and we went, fine, let's do it. And, yeah, that uh, working as a mechanist at Sydney Opera House, I developed a real love of opera and, and then they've got the stage management department there, of course, and I was working with the stage managers for the opera company and getting to know them and I kind of put my hand up and said, if there's ever any extra work or you need an extra person in a rehearsal room... I'd love to come and help out and it just kind of developed from there and they'd obviously worked with me on stage. They'd seen my work ethic and um, and they asked me to join them for a season on tour in Melbourne and then it kind of rolled on a little bit from there. Stepped it in and out a few times but, uh, yeah, mainly Opera Australia, loved the opera, still do, still love the opera. It's uh, different to spoken word. The Opera Australia is a machine and they have to be with the pace that they roll out their productions. um, There's quite a, a small stage management group and everybody knows what they have to do within each production and they just get on with the job. I think when you go to places like STC, they're much smaller. You do a lot more and... The job can be a little bit more flexible because obviously the productions are always new at SCC. Well, they were when I was there for a very short period of time and your role developed with the production rather than being the defined machine that it is.
2: And for our audience sakes, SCC
0: is Sydney Theatre Company. Oh, yes. I actually did that with Anna when we were just chatting before. I said, SCC, Sydney Theatre Company, yeah, and OA, Opera Australia, (laughs) yeah.
1: You mentioned that it's very different to working with um, a written text or just straight theater. What do you think makes opera so unique and what are their unique challenges to it?
0: You have to be comfortable with the score. I never call it really reading music because you get to familiarize yourself with the score through rehearsals, but you need to be able to put that score down and pick it up at any point. You'll always hear someone come saying, "What page are we on?" because Sometimes it's just so hard to get your place back. So you need to be familiar with that. The sets are really big. The crews are really big. Uh, I haven't done any of the big musicals through Australia, but we did. I did a few in Dubai and the opera crews were generally double the size of those big musicals. The sets are heavy. The costumes are heavy. The casts are really big. Sometimes you might have 80 or 90 people on stage and the... Joan Sutherland Theatre in the Opera House, it's not a big stage. It's I think it's 10 metres um, across the front. And so when you're putting a set, all the costumes and 90 people on that stage at the one time, it's, uh, yeah, everything's just bigger, so much bigger and refined. And when I say refined, I don't mean that in a bad way to anything else, but the stitching on all of the costumes, all of the wigs were using real hair, which I know was more traditional to opera in this modern world i don't think they do that so much in other places because it's just so expensive the wigs were being made in the opera workshop it's just everything is just so detailed that i haven't really seen in productions that i've come across other productions yeah
2: and the when it comes to the big sets it's it's always i remember that the opera sets being pushed out into the central passageway of The Sydney Opera House sort of, what was that? The Dock Shuffle. Central Passage and the Dock Shuffle. Yeah, tell Anna about that because I think that's such a unique, crazy thing that the people who work at the Sydney Opera House have to do.
0: Well, because they do, and I'm talking about when they maybe do nine shows in a season. Um, Before that I think they used to do 13 or 14. These days it tends to be three or four. But you'd have four shows in the opera house at the same time and there wasn't necessarily room for all of them and there's this central passage that runs up through the middle of the opera house and it would just have these opera sets lined all up and down it but they were also stored underneath the stage, they are also stored in uh, the dock underneath the stage and towards the back and to get the pieces on for the right show, sometimes there'd be an hour and a half of just like a Tetris in the central passage in the dock, moving one piece of a set that way so you can pull that piece out so then you can get it there and then you can get on the lift because this is all underneath the stage and then it's got to go up in the lift. So, And some of the pieces were big, like some of the set pieces, uh, Rigoletto in particular, I think it had about an inch on either side of it to actually, like you had to get that on within an inch otherwise when you lifted that thing up it was gonna it was gonna hit the bottom of the stage but yeah the dock shuffle it was always lovely when you had smaller shows but for the bigger ones sometimes it was an hour and a half just moving set pieces around it was a
1: good workout that's crazy do you give uh, some sort of instructions to the designers and fabricators to say hey we don't want to spend over two hours shuffling scenery (laughs)
0: Look, I, I was never I've never at that level within the opera company. Sometimes you hope so, but I don't think so. I think the opera, like I, from what we always kind of went, I think the designers went, okay, okay, the lift's that big. Okay, so I've got that much space that I can do stuff with. Brilliant. It's, um, or oh, the stage is this wide. Okay, so I can get that much stuff on. Or the doorways are that wide. Okay, so I can get the set piece that big. It's a, uh, everything was kind of just just fit it was um, we actually had an opera that the workshop rebuilt using photographs of one of the Mets productions and I think they downsized it by 30 percent but the Met has got this incredible wing space and the opera theater stage only had a meter off it so these tables had all these hinges and people having to try and race and catch them together as they were turning corners to turn them into longer tables and Yeah, I don't know if I trust a designer (laughs) being told these are your limitations. It's uh, like, this is it. Okay, I'm going to, that's what I'm going to do.
2: And the wing space is always a problem for the ballet too because they'd be dancing off the stage, but then it'd have to like abruptly stop because there was nowhere to go off the side of the stage, right?
0: I always heard rumours of, um, I never actually saw it and I did work on a couple of the ballets, but I heard rumours that sometimes it was blocked into the ballet that somebody would be standing off stage to catch them as they came off because if there was no one to catch them they just go straight into the wall because pretty much you step off the stage and that is the wall it's a uh, I don't think it, it's barely room for two people to walk down the wings shoulder to shoulder I think depending on how far it goes off stage of course but yeah the ballet sets get quite big as well it's um but they're not as heavy
1: yeah that 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 fight for real status is, is a thing
2: <laughs> get
0: it
1: there yeah it's uh yeah no it's
2: good <laughs> when it comes to opera um people either love opera or they don't like it and maybe some people don't understand it or maybe they didn't grow up listening to it or watching it or witnessing it what do you think is the barriers for people to go and see it or how 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 can people sort of become more au fait with going to see the opera do you think i think opera
0: has a almost a bad reputation before it even gets to produce something fabulous. It's, uh, I think, you guys use the word elitist or something like that. As I mentioned, you know, there's there's so many people involved, and they do things like making wigs with real hair, and it costs so much money, and that drives up the prices. I think of the tickets. Um, it's also it's it's an older form. I mean, they sometimes they you'll try and make it more contemporary by bringing a piece into a contemporary era, but you know, you're performing things from hundreds and hundreds of years ago when that was the, the language of performance back then. Opera is also in different languages. So you can either spend your time looking at the surtitles or you can sit and enjoy the actual opera but then you might miss nuances in the text. I mean I don't look at the surtitles anymore so I miss so much information. I think also the music, uh, people think that the music isn't very interesting and yet they're always surprised when they actually know so many opera princes. I used to do this in Dubai because they're like, no, no, we don't know any opera. And they're like, do you know this? Do you know this? And like, yes, yes, we know this, we know this. And they knew everything. It's um, thank you advertisements and television for all of that um, and, and films, but it feels unattainable. It's expensive to buy a ticket. You know, when you see it in films, it's always a gala with people dressed in tuxes and formal dresses and diamonds and things like that. I think I went to an opening night and there was a girl off a tour ship wearing uh, tiny cut-off shorts and knee-high Ugg boots. So times have changed a little bit, but um, I think people prefer to go to a pop concert than to go to the opera. I mean, I prefer to go to the opera, but I really, really like the opera. So, yeah. I think that's where they feel they'd rather spend their money, and, and also sport. I think a lot lot of people will go and see sport rather than go and see performance these days, which is a bit, sad, a bit sad.
1: Have you got to work with new work in opera, like new composers, new like an opera that was written in 2020 or something like that?
0: Um, I haven't. I don't think I worked on one that was written in 2020, but I did work on... Um, of mice and men, uh, it's an American composed piece, and I can't remember the name of the composer. But he actually flew over to Australia to come and see it, and it was it was an amazing production. It was phenomenal. Audiences don't, from what I, like people I speak to, like colleagues not colleagues but friends and parents, friends and things or parents of friends they often don't like contemporary opera as much. Oh, I actually just had another thought. It was um, Mr Haddock who was at the opera company. He unfortunately passed away at the beginning of the year, but he wrote this amazing um, score called Madeline Lee and you felt like you were sitting in a cinema watching a movie to watch this and it it was one of those stories where it just does a twist at the end and you're like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe it was like that the whole time and it was, it's just amazing to see that. So, yeah, I did get to work on maybe not 2020, but it was certainly written in maybe the last 20 or 30 years. I feel that's contemporary enough. So.
2: But you said that from an from a audience point of view, it was less well-received. Um, I'm assuming that you're talking about ones that you put on at the Opera House, right? So was it like, like less attended or, or the feedback and the reviews were not as enthused?
0: Um, I can't remember the reviews. I know that um, a friend's parents, they said they didn't stay for a streetcar named Desire. I think they either walked out in the first or the second interval and I was so surprised because I thought it was... So amazing! I thought the music was amazing. I thought that it was such a relatable opera for people to go and see because you know it's based on the play and it had so much of the play in there. Uh, Bruce Beresford was the director and he'd done these incredible film that um, images that went over the top of the set. It was an interesting set that moved around. The costumes were stunning, and basically they were they weren't after contemporary music um and contemporary opera they they wanted more traditional they wanted their traviata they wanted their madama butterfly and they wanted their carmen so when there was a new opera on they weren't that interested in it and um i think sometimes you can almost tell that even by looking at current programming they've got a program what sells and that is your aida and your Trovatore, traviata butterfly and Love OM, and I think that's why it's on so much, especially in Australia, because we've got a small audience. All personal opinions, of course.
1: Keep thinking on on all those educational programs the Paris Opera has been doing, La Opera de Paris, just to attract new audiences and younger audiences. And they had haven't looked recently, but they had such cool things little little things going on so they could attract younger audiences. That was their main goal, I think.
0: Yeah, I I don't know what they did. I know a few years ago I think Opera Australia was selling cheaper tickets for under 30-year-olds and I was always jealous of those people that were actually under 30 because, uh, you know, they could get cheaper tickets. I was like, why couldn't I get cheaper tickets when I was under 30? um, I heard a great story the Royal Opera House in London did I was like I would have so gone to that that would have been amazing Um, and this is probably exaggerated just a little bit inside my head as the the story's gone on in the years um, for their premiere of Anna Nicole which was based around Anna Nicole Smith that they sold out the entire house at the Royal Opera House in Covent Garden for one pound each per ticket as long as you were under the age of 30 and it's, I mean, this is all a little bit rumour and yeah, exaggerated, but it, you couldn't even get a ticket if you were over the age of 30. And then they threw this incredible after party in their foyers afterwards and it was all decorated in hot pink balloons and cocktails and, and they made it a night for these under 30-year-olds to come to the opera. Um, I'm not sure how educational that was, uh, but <laughs> it sounded like a lot of fun. I used to go, well, I went once uh, as a school child. We got the opportunity to go and see, I think it was especially a school's performance, and it's the Barber of Seville by Opera Australia, and it's still the same Barber of Seville that they're putting on now, and I think, you know, that production must be 20-something years old maybe, and loved that as well. I mean, everybody loves having half a day off school as well, so it sort of had that bit in there. Um We all thought that Ambrosio was the funniest character and he doesn't actually sing a word or say a word in the entire opera, but that he was definitely the school kid's favourite. But I don't think they do that anymore. I don't know if it it costs a lot of money. I've heard rumours as well that during one performance of a school show that kids were throwing M&Ms at the performers during the show and that wasn't really appreciated so they went no more. But, um, yeah, I think it's harder to get, it's also hard to coordinate schools to get the same time off to come in for a big show like that. So it's all all a bit of guessing that is um for the big operas. I know that Opera Australia also does the schools tour where I think they reduce operas and take them around to the primary schools um in tiny little sets and the opera singers put the shows together themselves and they, they're the stage crew, they're the performers, they're the wardrobe, they do everything. And then there's also the regional tours which I think they do an amazing job on getting opera out to places where opera wouldn't be as accessible obviously not in the big cities and they do the full thing I think often they're done in English but the sets are beautiful the costumes are beautiful the direction is amazing and it's a proper it's a proper tour of an opera and it it, you think it would be smaller just when you're comparing it to the opera, like the the ones that go into Arts Centre Melbourne and the Sydney Opera House. But I actually think they're rather rather big for what they do and they go around the whole of Australia. Education for opera for classical music, I took music at school, so I guess that helped me get a love for opera. But if you don't do the music and you're not really learning about some of the nuances and where themes come in like when you first hear a character's theme and then you know an hour later it develops into something else you're sort of missing out a little bit but yeah it's it's a hard one to do I mean if people aren't wanting to be educated in it you can't force them and sit them down although I think they'd love it if they did.
2: Yeah and I think you know you've got the the business aspect of of it as well you you know you mentioned that Australia doesn't have a limitless resource of audiences because it's a small country, and so they've got to decide where that money goes and to what and what's going to keep them afloat. So, I don't envy the the business minds behind that because I'm sure the intention is always there to get it across and out to people and educate them and that sort of thing. But, it Australia is a very, as you mentioned before, a very sport based. Um, society as well so there's a huge following for sports that kind of supersedes the arts in a way right Um, I would say just generally.
0: I think it's very rare that the arts does do really well unless it's one like Hamilton has done fantastic but it had think how many years of reputation uh, and promotion from America it had before it arrived over here and what would have happened if it had just started in Australia? And Australia was its first point off the ground. Would it have had the same success in Australia as it had over in Broadway? I sort of feel probably not. Australians tend to go to theatre when they know they'll like something. They, I don't think they tend to try a lot of new, new bits. Uh, it's a smaller percentage that I think are enthused by stepping out their comfort zone or just trying something on a whim, not knowing anything about it.
1: You're telling us how touring helped opera get into smaller places in that. It made me think on how both the Sydney Opera House and the Dubai Opera function as well as road opera uh, road houses and receive shows, different kind of shows from different parts of the world. So I don't know if you, you can tell us a little bit more of how they work what a roadhouse is, how they work, what's the difference between just producing opera all the time?
0: I call Sydney Opera House and Dubai Opera a receiving house and City Recital Hall is a little bit similar to that, as in it's it's a it's event a or not a receiving house, but it's a venue that people hire. Sydney Opera House, you know, it it's got a pretty good reputation around the world. People people know what it is. Um they can definitely Definitely got a little bit of coin there, I think, to spend, or they can choose a little bit of what comes in the door. And they've been going for how many years now? Is it forty years? Fifty years? I can't remember how many years the Sydney Opera House has been. I'm going to look this up as we speak. (laughs) I know I've been there for a few anniversaries, but I'm just which ones? Which ones? Dubai Opera is is a newer business and it was all new practices but a lot of the people that came in um, from the technical staff well actually a lot of them had come from opera, opera houses around the world and a couple from venues and it's 62 years old 62 62
2: years old it is she's getting old
0: yeah right it's uh <laughs> but um i think in the end when people build a venue like that they just They're building it because I feel the original intention is to have something to give to the public, a place where they can put on performances for the public, and that might be the original intention. And then I think, and you know, you can sort of go, oh, maybe this happened with Dubai Opera as well. I don't even know, but they suddenly realize how much money it actually costs to put on all these shows, and how many people you have to be paid, and how much people. Don't want to pay to come and see these items, and trying to get a really broad variety so that you can cover everything. I think Dubai Opera did that really well. They, I think, they pretty much had every single genre that would walk through the door. We had some Spanish dancing. We had rock and pop. We had Arabic pop. We had Arabic classical. We had Indian comedy. We had Cam Mac musicals. We had Italian opera. I think, I think they did a pretty amazing group. And from what I heard um, from people I knew in Dubai, they really enjoyed the programming there. I think there, there's a big difference in that Sydney Opera House has got this, like everyone wants to go and see something at Sydney Opera House. Performers want to perform there, whereas Dubai Opera, people don't trust it as much maybe. it's uh, we'd, we'd get these companies come through and they really expected us not to be able to put on a show. At all, they thought that you know, they were always surprised that um, English was the required language to be spoken there um, for the for the crew. Anyway, um, they were surprised at the background of the crew. Like we came from all over the world, and we you know we'd all worked in theatre. We all had theatre backgrounds, and I think they thought that we were going to be some sort of slapstick thing that didn't know didn't know what a theatre was or how to operate one. So I think that was just the big difference between the two.
2: And it's like, I mean, Dubai Opera is so much younger in in its essence really because you actually were there, if I recall, when it opened, right, as as it was opening. And what was that experience for you personally to, one, move to the Middle East, go into the, you know, the, the beginning of a venue and then establish yourself as the stage manager within it? I mean, that's a lot to take on.
0: It was. I probably didn't really know what it was when I took it on and I was really lucky. I had um, a colleague who I'd already worked with in Australia and we both went in and so we were the two stage managers there and I'm always so grateful for that because we had we thought similar ways in a lot of things and came from similar backgrounds and it just made everything I think so much easier for us because we're like, no, this is what I think We this is the way we think that we'd like to do things and we weren't, you know, bouncing different cultures off each other and I think that made it a little bit more efficient, especially when you're opening a brand new business that we're already coming from the same direction or, um, yeah, we knew this, you know, we'd worked, we'd actually worked on operas together as well, but to go over there and open it that was just amazing and i think after 3 months i was like okay when's the next one i want to go and open another venue i, want to be, I really like this it's uh it was it was amazing it, I, I i can't even describe it and it was still going on when i was when by the time i left there was there's always a new process that's coming in everything was always being developed like 4 years on you're looking back at where you started why would i even think that was an okay process for us to be working under and you just got to grow in your work at such a steep incline because of the pace, the people you were surrounded with. You were learning. You're basically giving a being given a free education on how the rest of the world works theater as well, and you're able to tap into all of that. So, yeah, it was it was. I mean, I think you guys have done that as well, haven't you? In the um, in the Cirque and the La Pearl, you've like those venues. Being part of those venues when they open, I, I imagine it's a fairly similar feeling, is it?
2: Yeah, I mean, I would agree. I think I think the most fascinating thing about moving and working in different countries is is learning from all the people that you're around you, um, and it, and it's also just often very funny because there's communication errors. You could be frustrated by it, but sometimes it can be hilarious. We had this thing in Macau with all of the names of the tools and what they're called in different countries because everybody was like asking for tools and like, I don't even know what you're talking about. What is that? And uh, so we developed a little chart so that everybody knew what, what what each other each country was talking about. So yeah, that's fun.
0: I mean, I kept calling asking for shifters and no one knew what a shifter was. I can't remember what they call that over in England, but no one knew. And then also, I think I mentioned that. Uh, like we were all required to speak English at Dubai which is great for me because I don't speak any other language. But we had two Spanish flymen who are the most beautiful, beautiful, gentle souls in the world, and they were trying so hard. One of them, his English wasn't very strong back when we started. It's just soared since. And they were talking in English, and but it was so slow and trying to think of the words It got to the point of 20 minutes later and their boss just went, guys, just do it in Spanish. We just, we need to get this going. And uh, yeah, it was those funny moments that yeah, multicultural teams coming in together and yeah, <laughs> thinking of all the memories.
2: And you, Anna? <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking, well, I think
1: it was two parts of the question. Yes to multicultural teams. I love them. And, the language issues are a thing and I love them. I was actually a couple of days ago talking about spanner, C wrench, adjustable. <laughs> and then um, I was like, I don't even know how I call it. Like, I just, I think for me, the one that makes more, more sense is the adjustable. So I call it adjustable wrench.
0: I would know what that was, I would understand that. But this word they use in England, I have no idea what that thing like. If somebody said, "Go grab that," you just get a blank
1: face. It's a well. see so you see how we feel when we don't understand the words. So it's just. <laughs> but then you mentioned about working in in new venues and new projects, and that I stepped that onto that by accident. And I do think I developed like an addiction. It's just such fast paced, new the newest technology, really good teams. And also really big challenges in terms of everything, everything, because everything has to work fine, fast. Yeah, I don't know. I do like it, but it's complicated, and people often get frustrated in, in those projects.
0: And a little exhausting, I would think, as well. It's
1: <laughs> Yes. Uh, but I do want more of those too.
0: <laughs> it's an addiction, the adrenaline that goes and... All of a sudden when it starts to slow down and like when it did start to slow down, I look back at now and just go, you weren't actually slow. Like the shows, they were coming in, they were coming in. It's just the actual, the the building was starting to operate and it was, it, yeah, me just going, oh, so slow now and it just wasn't and I just had lost any sense of reality on what was working normally and what was that in, yes,
1: yeah. I think you also get to learn so much so fast because you don't have the choice. Like you need to understand everything on that right moment. Yeah. And I don't know. That's also interesting.
0: And if there's a problem or if there's a process that needs to be developed, everything needs to have happened yesterday or two days before. It's it's never, okay, what's my deadline? Okay, your deadline's in three weeks. It's like, no, yesterday.
2: Yeah. We were, we were talking with uh, another uh, person in Dubai just a few days ago and I think that it, especially the UAE has a, a, a very, on top of just being a roadhouse and being a show, being a new venue, the UAE also has a sense of urgency when they're trying to get things done and she also expressed that when um, she works in events over there. But she also expressed that, like, there's never enough time, never enough time to do the project, never enough time to to to, you know, have all that you know whimsical creative process where you get to sit on it for a few weeks. It's like go 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 get it done. You know,
0: yes. Somebody has this idea and says, "Okay, we'll do it tomorrow." Oh, okay. That's how. <laughs> <laughs> Let me go organise that then. <laughs> no worries. I'll get back to you in half an hour. It'll be fine.
2: What would you say is like the major differences that you, aside from the work and everything, that you had to adjust to moving to a different country and working in, in a different location? I think um, the bit that probably caught me
0: out the most was, I think I'd just gotten used to working in buildings that operated because, and I didn't think how does the security team know and accept what works in a theatre. I it just didn't even occur to me. and our um, health and safety and security guys uh, they were so lovely, and but it there was a process of needing to break down um, you know rehearsals and why, and we did risk assessments, and we were incredibly safe over there, or we yeah you know, we were quite strict about it. But things in theater that might not look safe to someone who doesn't work in the industry, it could make them a bit nervous but when you break it down and say no this is okay they've actually spent three weeks rehearsing this um, the costumes been designed to cope with what they're doing um, going up and down of heights these you know pyros that are coming in they've actually been designed to be inside and we, we actually did an excursion um, much later after it had opened out to this uh, one of the companies that did all the special effects and they were great and they took us through a tour and a breakdown of all the products they used um, specifically for our health and safety and security team, which was really useful. Um, also, uh, the mothership was mainly a hospitality company and a lot of our front of house had come in from hospitality and maybe hadn't worked in theatre before. Um, same with our marketing and finance. So there was a certain education you know, when you don't know how it, that that language of theatre or why things have to happen in a certain way in the performing arts, that just really caught me out. I wasn't expecting that. I was just like, oh yeah, you know, you just go and say this, this, and it gets done. And to be priorities weren't quite understood. The the sense of urgency to have uh, you know rehearsals starting at a certain time or to have a certain amount of the requested items for a company set before they arrive. It, that was hard work that that that's probably what frustrated me the, the most when i first started and probably where i learned a lot about myself and new skills on how to manage myself was learned yeah did you feel the same you were in saudi quite a lot as well and i imagine it would have been somewhat similar
2: yeah, I mean, I have bounced around into different um, sort of industries, and, and um, I was more doing an installation in Saudi um, than that. But I, I feel like a lot of the time, in certain circumstances, I agree with you. There may be a team there that can execute the event, but there may be some peripheral people involved. That you, there has to be that education and relationship process build. And I often find that I come from a very different perspective from a lot of people, so I've got to try and work where we come together in some way so that yeah. it it works and then and, and often that I wouldn't say it's compromising it's just me i i have to be very malleable to go okay in this context this is what i can achieve as opposed to let me come in like a bull in a china shop and tell you how it is supposed to go, kind of thing. <laughs> like, I think it's really just okay. You always bring your own set of standards and expectations and, and the way things should happen, and and you realize very quickly that if you try and push that too hard, then you're only going to get met, be met with more resistance. Um, so they ha- it has to come together as if, if as if we're all coming there to that point together, rather than somebody particularly driving it I think that's the biggest challenge especially when from a cultural perspective you don't culturally understand each other you know or a language barrier or anything like that those those hurdles become quite hard over time um and Anna would have different experiences you know coming from where she comes from and the places that you've gone to as well right so um I'm the we've sp- spoken about this a number of times in a podcast it's like I'm the one that always feels a little bit like I'm not the one that can speak the three languages right so I'm the ways this I feel stunted a lot of the times when I when I go because I'd love to be able to really go over and speak Spanish with the fly guys or go over and speak you know Chinese to the people next door to me you know and it's it, that's it's my fault honestly I mean if I had more time in my day maybe I'd be able to learn Mandarin but I'll leave that to my kids.
0: <laughs> <laughs> stick to our own special languages yeah after you go through experiences like that this is where I get all deep and meaningful um <laughs> I I really feel like I came out a much better person and those were probably the most valuable types of skills that I learned whilst being over in Dubai Opera was actually the cross-cultural and the um the personal skill set that probably wasn't actually specific to working in theatre but more of the experience of working in a different country and I think they're sort of lessons that you can take and they're kind of gifts that you, you can't really be taught a lot of that sort of stuff I don't think in school but once you experience it yeah I think it opens your eyes and hope that it makes you a better person.
1: So, how does that work out now that you're back in Australia and you get to apply it to your new company uh productions and stuff like that? <laughs> I came back from Dubai and I went oh, Australians are
0: assholes. <laughs> <It's>, uh, <laughs> that's what I've come back going Everyone's got it so easy <laughs> it's, uh, um no it's I think it's it's made work a lot more pleasant in Australia because I feel like I learnt all those life skills over there and everything's become just easier to manage. I don't I, I can't describe it. It's, I think my patience, I don't know if I was ever the most patient person before <laughs> I left Australia. I feel like I'm a lot more patient now, probably a slightly less dramatic, still very dramatic generally, and probably a bit calmer. As well, but maybe that's an age thing as well. Like not just a life experience. It might be I'm just getting old.
2: <laughs> and so, what what is your new job at the city recital hall? Um, it's more into the event management realm, right? So, tell us about that.
0: It, it's interesting. It's um, it's it's at the moment I, I'm still very new to. So obviously, nowhere near having picked it all up yet. But the stuff I'm doing it. It feels very similar to what I was doing at Dubai Opera in the stage management role over there but the, the administration side and the communication side of that job and then just putting those little wedges of the extra bits of contracting and the reconciliation at each end. Um, it's a really small team at City Recital Hall but a really lovely, lovely, lovely team. Yeah, it's it's scheduling and, you know, maybe some riders and negotiating and crewing and, and stuff like that. The, the computer stuff, which you, you've probably both done and uh, and I quite enjoy. And at the moment I'm still lucky to be stepping in and out of both. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's still very new. I mean, that's all I got after two weeks on the job. And also we've been in lockdown, so it's actually been two weeks or three weeks of on the job, sitting at home, doing the job, in the computer <laughs> so I, th- I even went through the interview process and everything applied for the job whilst we're in lockdown so haven't really been able to get the feel of it on the floor or anything at this point.
1: What would you say is the thing you like the most about working with music and opera and being a stage manager now an event manager?
0: Being exposed to so many amazing people it's a uh, I am still in awe every single day um, of the talents of people that go on stage and, you know, like when they get on the stage, you know how much time they've spent on doing what they do. But, you know, to hear an opera singer sing or to see a violinist just go, I, I can't, I wouldn't even know where to begin, or a dancer to be able to move so fluidly, I I'm just still kind of in awe of that, and I sort of feel like I get to go to work and see performances for free every single day. It's uh is is that what you guys? I don't I don't know if everybody else feels like that about the arts industry. Is that I don't know. What got you guys into it,
2: Annie? You answer first. Oh, uh, I so wanted you you to go for it. <laughs> uh uh what
1: do i like <laughs> this is the first time they turn around the question on well, i was
0: sitting there uh, going, oh, I like
1: empty sounds like no i actually
0: want to hear what you guys have to say as well
1: <laughs> <laughs> i really like being exposed to well i really i don't know there's so many parts of it but um i think working with acrobatics and circus and that kind of shows i feel is Pushing the boundaries in the artistic and aesthetic, in the technical side, and in what the body can do. And I think it's the most human thing we can ask for because you're touching all the things that make us very human. And I think that's what I could say.
2: I was actually having this conversation, I think it was with my husband just the other day, because I was saying to that I always used to go in school productions in high school. And I don't know why because, like, I'd never liked performing. I was never a performer. But I didn't know that anything else existed. Um, I must have been drawn to that performing arts. And despite not liking being on stage, I continued to get on stage for about six years until I went and did a degree and realised, oh, there's all these other jobs that I don't have to get on stage in the arts and I'm going to do that. I, it's it's visceral for me. I think I, I, I love the arts and uh, I have to be involved in it. I, I can't really even put a finger on why.
0: I always say that people don't work in the arts unless you really love it because as soon as you stop loving it, people just step aside. And I think everybody gets some sort of ownership or some moment of pride out of everything that they work on because I think people put their heart and soul. It doesn't matter if they're, they're putting numbers into a calculator or if they're, you know, if they are the, the, the principal person on stage. I just think that every single person has to have put something of themselves in there for for a show to get up because it 's never easy and it 's never the same it's not the same routine every single day it's it's always different there's always going to be frustrations because there's always the unknown. I like that about it
1: that <laughs> you say that you love that there's it's forever changing so there's a lot of frustrations, but you love it <laughs> and so within with <laughs> <laughs> you you embrace the frustration part, which I think it's very important.
0: <laughs> oh, there's always this one. Always it's a, but there's a But it's that moment when, because there is so much frustration, and then the curtain goes up, or you get front of house clearance on the first show, or the curtain comes down, or or it's the review. But there's those elements, and that in that moment of pride that every single person who worked on the project and all of a sudden the frustrations are like, oh, it's fine. It wasn't that bad. I mean, we've done worse. We've had worse. It's, uh, yeah, I think, I think those moments, and you get to do it over and over and over again in theatre because productions happen, they've got such a short lifespan really um, unless you're, you know, Hamilton going for two years straight or whatever it is. But, yeah, the ups and the downs.
2: There's some kind of amnesia that happens when you forget everything that was like, when something good happens, it's like this dopamine and you forget everything that was like bad and you, like, you just keep going. <laughs> I don't know. I think there's something that's quite interesting about
0: that. I, know, I was going to say it's the opposite. You know how usually when people give fee- feedback, they only, you only really ever get to hear about the negative feedback um, and I'm just talking anything. Like people will complain. They'll only remember to tell you the bad stuff. But in theatre, you forget the bad stuff but you always remember the really, really good stuff. And what was bad suddenly becomes one of those funny stories that you sit around in the pub having a beer with. It's a, yeah.
2: If you could change one thing about your job or the industry, uh, what would that be?
0: Oh, I think it's I think it's a um, highlighted thing at the moment, especially in Australia. I'm not sure if it's the same around the rest of the world and I assume it is because of COVID. Um, you know, in Australia, funding's a little bit of a sensitive topic for the arts at the moment. And I, I wish that everybody in the world understood how much the arts gives to the whole world because I, I just don't think they know um, when you think of all those COVID lockdowns. I mean, Netflix and all of those little projects, those arts and crap, that's all part of the arts. Um, you weren't really allowed to do sport and they were the activities that people had. It was all to do with performing arts. So I wish people realised it, were able to put those two things together and go, hey, this is just another section of the performing arts and it's all really the same and support it evenly across the board. As And I don't mean across the arts genres but across the board in regards to sports and that sort of thing as well. It's probably a little basic but it's, I guess it's a, a feeling of the times
1: uh, you have a couple of articles on the Theatre Art Live page, so you're a contributor for us, and also where can people reach out to you? I guess I've got the LinkedIn profile thing, which is Sophie
0: Mackay, and that's that's kind of it. I, I've got an Instagram, and I think I put something on it 18 months ago, and it hasn't been touched since, so <laughs> LinkedIn is probably the best way to get in touch. It's... Uh, I, I actually do check my, it's funny you mentioned that because we were talking about it just before. I do check my LinkedIn messages more than um, any other messages, yeah.
2: Well, thank you so much for um, spending some time with us today, Sophie. We're really super happy to chat to you and catch up and then hear more about your work back in Australia.
0: Oh, it's so lovely seeing you again. <laughs>
2: We would love to hear from you, our listeners, on who you would like us to feature on this podcast or what topics fascinate you. There's a link in our podcast description where you can send us your podcast requests and guest nominations. Theatre Art Life provides regular monthly webinars and podcasts for free, and if you have the means, donations can be made via a link in the podcast description. We would be thankful for any support you can give us. You can learn more about Theatre Art Life, the global media site for entertainment, at www.theatreartlife.com and you can follow us on all social media platforms. We want to thank David Zare for composing the music for our podcast. We are your hosts, Anna and Anna, and this is the Theatre Art Life podcast. Thanks for listening.